In fact, I was kind of sitting here just reflecting on kind of where we're going to go today, and I was thinking about the moment last night, right? I kind of stepped off stage. I was standing right over there. Uh, Brian was up here. They were kind of leading us in this last song of worship, and I was thinking about in that moment, like, what does it look like just to give God unadulterated, unconcerned about when anything else is going on around me type of worship? And here Aaron is sitting on the stage. Did you guys see this picture last night with me? And he's just free, just worshiping. Aaron, where are you at, buddy, by the way? Uh, right there in front of me. Uh, man, you gave me a gift last night. I, I appreciate that. Uh, just to watch you worship was, was powerful uh, for me in the very least, so thank you. And I hope you guys, uh, maybe as you've had different highlights throughout the week, uh, that is one that I will certainly take home with me. Uh, and I, I want to talk about this tonight, as we talk about yet another story, right, of what does it look like to worship God with our heart, our soul, our minds, and our strength. We have seen some bad examples thus far, right? We've seen some Nadab and Abihu's that were, as we talked about, kind of the frozen turkeys, the thing that we're not after. Uh, we've seen some guys like Aaron that definitely had the right heart, but man, externally, he wasn't in the right place to worship. But what happens when we put all those things together? What happens when a heart, a soul, and our mind, and our strength come before the Lord in such a way that we are able to give him everything, the, maybe the complete package, so to speak. Well, there's a story that immediately jumped into my mind as I was thinking about what this looks like. And I want to invite you to turn there with me. It's found in Mark chapter 14. A powerful story. Maybe to set you up is kind of as we get into the text itself. Uh, I want you guys to have a little bit of framework as we kind of do every time. Uh, we are entering into, in Mark 14, the very last week of Jesus' life on earth. So think about this. He's walked this world, at least publicly in ministry, now for three plus years. He's called disciples to himself. He has taught about his kingdom, this different king from a different kingdom, and about uh, the proclamation of the good news, that when he leaves this earth, that salvation will be found in him because of his death, his burial, and his resurrection on the cross. And the final week now is in front of him. He knows that the cross is coming. This was his purpose in coming to the earth, and he knows what awaits him in just moments. His agony, his difficulty, his pain, torture, trials, the crucifixion, that is on the horizon, and he's walking full head into it. And he told the, the Father, not my will, Lord, but yours be done. He'll say that just in a few days from this point in the garden, saying, Lord, I, I, I don't want this for me, but for the sake of humanity, I'm going to lay aside my will and do what needs to be done for the sake of everybody here. But in the midst of this week, in the midst of all that's about to occur in Jesus' life, it's if Mark just kind of pulls the e-brake for us and allows this, this kind of divine parentheses, this time in a moment just, just to pause and to see a glorious moment in light of what will certainly for Jesus at least be horrific. That thing that was horrific for him was amazing for us. But we get this, this interlude, this one little story. And it's so important, it's actually recorded in three different gospel accounts. Mark, Matthew, and Luke were so impacted by this moment in this woman that they record this in their gospel. And what I want to do is just walk you through Jesus from this woman's eyes, because it's powerful. How this woman sees our Lord and Savior and how she responds to him. The amazing part about this, in this entire text that we're going to read, she says nothing. Not one word is uttered from her lips about how she feels about Jesus. And in fact, of all the verses that we're going to read, only one of them even centers on her. We get one verse even showing us her actions. But I promise you at the end of this, when I ask you the question, does this woman love the Lord her God with 
all of her hurt, her heart, all of her soul, all of her mind, and all of her strength, you will, without a doubt, give me a resounding yes. Because she exemplifies what it means so clearly to love Jesus in that sort of way. So with that, Mark chapter 14, verses 1 and 2. Mark kind of sets now the, the framework of the narrative. He says in verse 1, Now the Passover and unleavened bread were two days away. The chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to seize him, speaking of Jesus, by stealth and kill him. For they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise there might be a riot of the people. So Mark kind of gives us this chronological anchor in the midst of the story. Passover, this feast that the Jews have been celebrating now for 1,500-ish years is about to happen. They're celebrating God's deliverance of the nation of Israel out of Egypt, out of bondage, and out of slavery as God through Moses delivered them. We talked briefly about that event this week, and they're coming now to Jerusalem to remember that. And anywhere between maybe a million to a million and a half people would have been leaving all of their homes, embarking now to the temple that is in Jerusalem to worship together. Uh, and the, the religious leaders of the day realized that, man, they're in a bit of a pickle, that though they have made their determination of who Jesus is to them, they've said he's not the Messiah, he's not the guy we've been looking for, and we're going we're gonna to find a way to take his life. He's proclaimed things that no one should proclaim if they're not indeed God, because he definitely said that he is, that he knows the Father at that level. Uh, but they are now in a pickle. And this group here we see in verse 1 called the Sanhedrin, uh, kind of the religious leaders of the day, maybe the religious supreme court is how we would qualify them. They have made up their minds that they're going to seize him. But they can't do it now because there would be a riot on their hands. And now in verse 3, Mark's going to shift the scene away from this, again, impending doom of what's going on and go to a very different scene, moving away from those who hate him and wish him dead, these religious leaders during Jesus' day, and now is going to focus on those who love him and have decided to dedicate their lives to him. Men and women that will be in this room that have walked on this earth with Jesus now for years. They've heard his teaching. Uh, they've seen him. They've experienced him. They've walked intimately with him, and they are going to have together one final meal, and they're going to enjoy this together. Look at chapter 14, verse 3. It says, while he, speaking of Jesus, was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, reclining at table. Just pause there kind of halfway through this verse. Bethany is a town just on the other side of the valley of Jerusalem. Jesus can see Jerusalem and what's in front of him just literally miles away, a couple miles from where this story is taking place. And we're told that this man, uh, Simon the leper, is the guy that's hosting what we're going to see to be a dinner party. We know very little about this man specifically, probably not the same leper that we heard about earlier this week, probably not that guy, but more than likely, given the fact that this guy still has a house, he's living in his home with other people, he's no longer a leper, and it's believed that Jesus probably healed this guy. So you can imagine how this guy feels about Jesus, right? He's inviting him into his home. Uh, he's eternally grateful for what Jesus has done on his behalf. And he's hosting a party out of gratitude for what Jesus has done to all the people that are there. And the text says they're reclining at the table. Uh, I don't know if you've seen Leonardo da Vinci's picture of the Last Supper, right, where all the disciples are kind of sitting at their photo op at this kind of big table. Like, that's what we have in our mind's eye. That's not how they ate in those days. You literally would recline at table, something actually much more like this stage, maybe six inches, 12 inches off the ground. You would lean on the table. 
kind of on your side. You would lean with your left hand and eat with your right. And it was this super kind of casual feel. And all these individuals that we're going to see here in just a moment are there. Uh, This meal is going to be described as kind of like a a lunch-dinner deal, a very long meal. Um, There's no exact maybe translation in in, in English for us, but this long kind of casual, unhurried time together that intimate friends are going to have. Simon the leper, who we've already met, obviously is the man hosting this. The guy by the name of Lazarus is there. You remember him? The guy that was dead just a few days ago, and Jesus literally raised him from the dead. That guy's here. His two siblings, Mary and Mary and Martha, are also there. The 12 disciples are present, the men that Jesus has called to walk with him for the last three years of his public ministry. A room full of grateful people that love Jesus. Um, I don't know if you guys have friends like that, where you have moments like these, where you can just get lost in conversation. You can have a meal or some type of get-together where the hours just go by and it feels like seconds. That's the room of these people. Uh, The text tells us that this isn't Jesus' first time in this home. He spent lots of time with these individuals, and they're enjoying what they know to be their final meal together. But there's this ominous feeling in the room. In the midst of this party, in the midst of this celebration, in the midst of what must have been this incredible time, there's at least one person in that room who's about to burst. She knows what's on the horizon. She knows the cross is coming. She knows her friend, her Savior, her, her, her Messiah is about to be put on the cross for her, and she simply cannot contain what is inside of her. And I want you to notice the back half of verse 3, what happens in the very middle of this dinner. It says, there came a woman with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume of pure nard. And she broke the vial and poured it over his feet. We need to move through this really slow. I want to paint the picture of what's going on. And this this verse is just jammed packed with details of what this woman is doing. Mark just tells us there's some woman. We're grateful for the other gospel accounts that John identifies this woman as Mary. There's lots of Marys in our New Testament. Mary, the mother of Jesus, and several others. We're not talking about those. We're talking about the woman who's identified frequently as Mary of Bethany from her hometown. She is Martha's sister. She is Lazarus's sister as well. These three are living together and are brother and sister. And she is, what she is doing here is is, is actually quite unusual. It wasn't normal for a woman to attend a banquet with men. But Jesus, with his treatment of women and how he constantly loved them and constantly uplift them, and as he's in a room full of friends, has invited them to be there. And the focal point now of this whole story shifts to her because of her actions and because of what she does. Um, She is overwhelmed by what's happening uh, in this moment. And what's most interesting about Mary is we see her mentioned only three times in Scripture. And every time we see this Mary mentioned in Scripture, do you know where she is? Without exception, she's at the feet of Jesus every single time. It tells you a lot about this woman what she thinks about Jesus, what she believes about him, how important he is in her life. She deeply loves this man. She is a devoted follower in a lot of ways, maybe not like the 12 disciples, but certainly a disciple of Jesus. And in the midst of this party again, she is overwhelmed with what she knows is going to happen. Guys, Mary gets it. 
in a sea full of people that so often around Jesus don't comprehend the fullness of who he is, don't obviously understand, even some of the disciples, the, the light bulb is not like at 100 watts quite yet. They haven't figured it all out. Mary gets it, and she takes, according here to verse 3, an alabaster vial of very costly perfume of pure nard. Friends, that is the understatement of the world. To understand what this woman has in her hand, it says, begins here with an alabaster stone. Alabaster is a really soft stone, kind of like marble, but softer. And it's this hand-carved vessel that she had in her hand. Would have had like a, a long neck on it with, with no handles. It was imported from Egypt. It was expensive as it was rare. Regardless of what was inside it, just the very vessel itself was priceless. And it says what was inside it is a substance called nard, or maybe your Bible say spike nard. It's a plant that was grown in northern India. Uh, it was imported, obviously, from there, the jar that it was in from Egypt. So both of these are very expensive. In fact, nard is the costliest anointing oil of antiquity. There was no more expensive oil that you would use for anointing. If we were talking about a car, we're not talking about a Yugo. We're not talking about a Ford Escort or a Chevy. We're talking about a Bugatti or a Rolls or a Bentley. We're talking about something that is incredibly expensive, incredibly hard to obtain. And by the way, a woman of Mary's stature would not be expected to have something of this value in her possession. More than likely, this was a family heirloom, something that had been handed down to her. So not only did it have incredible financial value, it would have had incredible sentimental value in her life as well. And she cherished this possession. More than likely, this was the single most expensive thing that she owned. It probably was the most dear to her heart, probably was her mother's or her grandmother's and came ultimately passed down into her family. And the text describes this not as some watered-down version of nard. It is pure nard, meaning it's undiluted, 12 ounces in weight today. Ladies, you think about maybe the perfume bottles that you buy, right, and how expensive these little tiny bottles of fragrance are. This is 12 ounces, three-quarters of a pound of anointing oil. It's a lot for the value. And we're told, by the way, its value later on in the text in verse 5 is 300 denarii. If you guys remember earlier, uh, a denarii or one denarius is one day's wage. The value of which she held in her hand was equivalent to about a year's wages. I mean, imagine a bottle of perfume. If you took maybe the average um, salary in, in maybe Fresno, where I'm from, about $42,000 a year. Can you imagine the value that it would have taken that much money to obtain that? And she has saved it for this moment. This wasn't something that you would normally travel with, right? You didn't put that in your fanny pack and walk around with that. That stayed at home. That was treasured. But she came to the party knowing what she was going to do. She brought this treasured possession with her, quite likely, again, the most valuable thing that she owned. And I want you to notice what she does. She doesn't screw off the top because there wasn't one. She doesn't uncork the bottle. Do you see what the text says? She broke the vial. She empties the entire con contents of what is in this on the head of Jesus. Matthew says the same over the head. John actually adds in his account details here that we need to see. John chapter 11, verse 3. You don't need to turn there. Let me read it for you. This is that she anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. 
and the house was filled with the fragrance of perfume. She anoints Jesus head to toe with the most costly thing that she can find, his entire body, right? It was common to anoint somebody's head, right? That's an appropriate thing to touch. One of the gals over here was like, hey, I got a knot on my head. I'm like, okay, I can feel that. But if she was like, I bruised my feet, I ain't touching that. Feet are nasty, right? They just are. It is what it is. She takes Jesus' whole body, and she anoints him with oil, touches him in, in in an extravagant way to show them, I love you, right? Incredible, even her position. Can you imagine what she would have to have done to wipe Jesus' feet with her hair, to lay at his feet and to take her hair, one of the signs of beauty and splendor of a woman, not some rag, but wipes his feet with her hair. Are you beginning to get a picture in a moment of how this woman feels about this man? I want you to imagine being in that room for a moment that normally this dinner party is going on and all of a sudden you're, you're laughing or you're sharing stories, you're reminiscing, and all of a sudden out of nowhere, Mary stands up and she simply cannot contain how she feels and she stops everything that's going on. All the attention is now focused on her and her serving her Messiah. In fact, she breaks so many societal norms in doing this. It was so inappropriate in a Jewish culture for a woman to be doing what a woman's doing here. But she says, I don't care. I cannot not do this. I am so overwhelmed. This was public. It was planned. It was sacrificial. It was lavish. And it was intensely personal. Do you see how she loves Jesus? Is there a better definition in your mind? of someone who loves Jesus with 100% of who they are than this woman. It's absolutely incredible. And yet we're going to see two very different reactions to what she does in the rest of the story. Look at verse 4 and following. But, and there's a key word for you, some were indignantly remarking to one another, why was this perfume wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for over 300 denarii and the money given to the poor and they were scolding her, indignant, wasted, scolding. This woman has literally just given her life savings at the feet of Jesus. He's he's performed maybe one of the most extravagant forms of worship that we have seen in the Gospels. And the disciples, these men, are sitting around looking down their noses at her. In fact, the text in Mark just says some. Matthew says it was all the disciples. John actually says it was Judas that was leading the charge and kind of looking down his nose at this woman. He's the treasure. He's going to be the guy that's going to betray Jesus later on. We know that story. In fact, John says that he was a thief. He had the money box, and he was used to pilfering what was in it. Judas more than likely just wanted to sell this so he could put it in his little box of treasury and ultimately take this money home. That was his moment to kind of kind of publicly humiliate her. But I want you to notice how Jesus now responds in this moment how he views what has just been done to him. Look at verse 6. But Jesus says, let her alone. Why do you bother her? She has done a good deed to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you wish, you can go and do with to them. But you will not always have me. Christ sees this for exactly what it is. It is a supreme act of worship. And he says, leave her alone speaking specifically to Judas and probably the 12, Jesus is making a statement about correct priorities. This woman, he says, gets it. Do not prohibit her from coming to me and doing what she is doing. 
And then he sees something even more so, and he makes a statement. Look at verse 8. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for the burial. This is powerful, and this is really the intent, I think, of what Mary is doing. Anointing was the first stage of the burial process. What Mary is, in a sense, doing is giving Jesus flowers a week before he dies. Instead of waiting to the funeral, to give her eulogy and to say, oh, here's what he meant to me and let me write my, my poem or let me say a few nice words now that he's dead. She says, I can't do it then. I need to do it now. I need to tell him what he's meant to me, the difference that he's made in my life. There's this sense of urgency with her. She's saying, Jesus, you are my everything. There is nothing as valuable as you in my life. You are the most treasured possession that I own. Nothing I have is worth anything in comparison to you. And I don't care if anyone or everyone else in this room cares or doesn't care. I am going to demonstrate before you how I feel to you. What this woman is doing is worshiping. That word worship, by the way, comes from an old English term. It means worthship. It's to ascribe worth to something. She is ascribing worth to Jesus. Of all the things that she could have worshipped or ascribed worth to or say, these are the things that matter in my life, she says, Jesus is it. He is the one that's deserving of my 100%. And I want you to see now in verse 9 how Jesus honors this woman. Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. In a sense, Jesus says to Matthew, write this down. I want the world to know for 2,000 years, I want them to read the story. I want them to know what 100% looks like. I want them to know what true worship looks like. I want them to see tangibly what someone who loves the Lord their God with all their heart and soul and mind and strength, when that gets fleshed out, it's her. It's this woman. Now remember, there's a room full of men, a room full of disciples that thought they were going to be, in a sense, the heroes, right, who have been called, and they're great men, right? The church exists in so many ways because of them. But Jesus says the hero of the story is Mary. She gets it. She understands who I am. And he honors her in this moment. But unfortunately, not everyone in the room feels that way, as we already saw a hint of how Judas felt about her. It says, in this very moment, in the midst of her doing this for Jesus, it says in verse 10 that Judas Iscariot, who was one of the 12, went off to the chief priest in order to betray him right then. Then they were glad when they heard this and promised to give him money and began seeking how to betray him at an opportune time. This man has spent his last three years walking the earth with Jesus. This man who claimed to be a king and now they're in Jerusalem. Judas has, in a sense, given up everything to follow Jesus. And this guy says, I'm going to Jerusalem to reign as king. He says, no, I'm going to Jerusalem to die. Judas is disheartened. He has no idea what to do with his life. And he thinks it's over and, in a sense, betrays Jesus. By the way, as Matthew tells us, for 30 pieces of silver. It was an insulting amount in terms of what he could have maybe offered or gotten in return. And it's such a contrast while Mary is there anointing Jesus' feet literally with everything she had, every dollar that she had, Judas sells Jesus out for essentially in today's money, an Xbox. 450, 500 bucks is what that would have meant 
today. What a story of contrast. It's unfortunate. I was having a conversation with a student just earlier today. And he said, Mike, what does it look like as we talk about this idea of loving the Lord our God with all of our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength? He said, in a sense, I get the mind, I get the strength, right? The external things, the things that are above the waterline, I understand how to love God that way. He said, but what does it look like tangibly to love God below the waterline? Friends, I don't always have the best answer for that question, but I can tell you when I see it. If I were to ask you right now, does Mary love Jesus 100%? Does she love Jesus with her heart, soul, mind, and strength? What would you say? Yes. It's so clear. Not one word spoken. One verse shows us the actions that she did. And yet you and I are undoubtedly convinced that this woman loves Jesus in a way that is unbelievable, that is mind-blowing. And if I asked you the same about Judas, you would say, absolutely not, right? He's faked it on the outside, but clearly his motives were very different. And again, it's a story of contrast. Now, as we think about Mary's story, I think we need just need to ask as we close our time together, what does this mean for us? Like, how do we then flesh this out? Like, is, is Jesus saying, okay, to, to love me in this way, you need to go find your alabaster vial of very costly nard, break it at my feet, right? We can't do that today. Is this what Jesus is calling us to? Well, well yes and, and no. No, he's not asking us, you know, to do the same. Obviously, that's impossible. We're not going to save up like our great-grandmother's perfume bottle and dump it on a picture of Jesus. Like, that. that's not feasible. But, in a sense, I think we are called to worship Jesus as Mary did. We are called to ascribe to him as the most important thing in our lives. Of all the things in this world that we can ascribe worth to, that we can pursue, of all the things that we can chase down, Mary says, for me, it's him. And it's him alone. There's not even a competition. He occupies all three spots on my podium. That is it. He is my all in all. And this only happens when we can love someone the way that Mary loves him. And I want to ask you guys a question, specifically now, as we end camp, we're kind of getting to the end of this. We've got one more time together tomorrow. But as you think about this, and maybe you just kind of put your life next to Mary's, and you ask yourself, Lord, is there anything in my life that's preventing me from doing that? Is there anything that's inhibiting me from loving God that way? Are there things that I'm holding on to that I refuse to let go of? Are there people in my life that are idols to me, that I so desperately care about, their approval of me or their affections of me or what they say on social media about me. I care more about those things than anything else. Are there any things, any people, any ideas, any, any lies that you're believing that would cause you to say, Lord, I can't love you like that. I can't possibly be Mary. As you maybe do some soul searching, as you dig underneath the surface, maybe in your so what time, I want to encourage you maybe to go to group with that question on your mind and be honest about it. I think we have been given a gift here of what it looks like to love God in an incredible way. It's simple, but it's incredibly profound. So gang, as we leave this time, I just want to leave you with one last memory of this woman and the incredible act of devotion that she showed to Jesus. And I'm praying for all of us that this would serve as an example of what it means to love God with everything that we have. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this incredible example of Mary who gave you everything. And Father, as we try to 
integrate our lives in that way, as we try to love you in a way that is authentic and real, that comes from the inside out as it so clearly did with Mary. Father, would you help us to put flesh to that? Would you help us to put words to that? God, would you help us to dig and to ask the hard questions if there's anything in our life that's getting in the way of that? Father, would we be willing to take those idols and put them away? Would we be willing to bury those in the sand and be honest and confess and repent if there's anything in our lives that holds a position that is more near and dear in our hearts than you? Father, would you help us to have the courage to ruthlessly identify those things, to viciously uproot them out of our lives, and to hand you the keys, in a sense, God, to our lives, and to worship you in this kind of way. Father, thank you for this woman and her example 2,000 years later to us of what it means to worship you. Father, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.